break things a little, but we're going we're gonna to cover the ground. So now we'll have the tape on, please, and uh, we'll come to session three on the Thursday afternoon. We're going to turn to Ephesians chapter four. And we're going to come in, um, you'll be on page 29 of your notes, and we're going to look at another way, way that we're to walk, and that is, we're going to, no wonder I can't find it, okay. It says in verse 17, I, This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk, as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. So we're going to look at this, of how we've got to abandon a certain way of walking mentally in order to walk, have a mind, if you like, that's renewed in spirit. So that our mind actually uh, is rewired by God to think the way that God thinks. Now that's what a renewed mind is like and, and it doesn't think worldly anymore and you find this all over the place. You go to the book of Romans after Paul has given his great treatise of the, um, the whole cosmic purpose of God which comes to a conclusion at the end of Romans 11 it, it finally tells us wonderfully how the Jews are going to fit into all his end time purpose and he says oh the depths and the majesty of the depths of the wisdom of God and, and then in chapter 12, he starts the practical. Therefore, brethren, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you do three things, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Then it says in verse 2, he says, and I love what uh, Phillips translates this in his paraphrase, he says, don't let the world squeeze you into its own mould. I love that phrase. There's a, there's a tremendous pressure of, upon Christians to think worldly, and, I, and by that I don't mean Sinfully, I mean that uh, you let the world shape your thinking so that your priorities, your senses of value and of success and all these things are shaped more by the world than they are by the Spirit of God. And I want to I say to you very lovingly that the American church is very, very shaped by the world in the way it, it uh, promotes anything, for example. And there's a worldly thinking that... Uh, uh, is uh, so accepted in Christian circles that he's not even seen for what it is. And that's a great hindrance to God accomplishing what he, want, what he wants to accomplish. And we've got to be open to this. And uh, here Paul addresses this thing, and it's an absolutely vital thing which will allow us to begin to move with God in the Spirit the way that we've never ever been able to do before. I'm going to give you a little example of this. When um, Colin uh, Bond and I, we were just coming over here this morning and he told me in his house in England, it's an old house, it's been there for several centuries and, there, and there's sort of some funny feelings sometimes in the house which you can't quite put your finger on but it, it's not, it just doesn't feel, it feels sort of cold somehow and, it, and you're not sure whether it's just the physical or the spiritual thing. And uh, it, two things happened. Number one was that this... Uh, a uh, brother from Rwanda, brother Siddiqui, comes on a visit, walks into the house, and he says, there's innocent blood being shed in this house. Goes straight to the room where it happened, and drives the demons out, and the whole house is cleansed. And from that day on, there's a totally different atmosphere. They've had go it's, it's known as the haunted house in the region there. And an American passing through um, actually had a... Um, a I suppose it was a, a, a vision of a dream where he actually saw a soldier in very old clothing two or three hundred years ago uh, killing a woman and with child and, and it's all happened in that bedroom. Now this guy just walks in, smells it <laughs> and deals with it. And all we stupid Brits are all walking around saying there's something funny around here but no one has got a clue. Because he's got a mind that's not westernized and it's far more open to the spirit in certain respects. Amen? 
And so there's a, there's a great need for us to be renewed in the spirit of our mind because we attribute many things to natural circumstances which are not. And I'm not suggesting on, we go off into some sort of loopy, you know, looking for demons under every bed kind of mentality. I'm just, we want to be spiritually practical. Amen? Thanks. Okay? So, we go on to this then, and we're first of all told in verses 17 through 20 what's happened to the world, and it's happened because of, of, Ad, of their, you know, of Adam's disobedience, and then as a result, us living in disobedience. It says, it says in verse 18, having their understanding darkened and being alienated, the word, I tried to look it up, but I'm, I'm 90% sure that this is the Greek word aphorizo, they're actually cut off. It's a, it's a pretty dramatic word. They're cut off from the life of God or alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them and because of the blindness of their hearts. So the day that they stepped out into independence, the life flow in them was no longer the eternal life of God. And it affected the way that they think and affected them, their ability in, to, to have their mind in right relationship to the spirit so as to think, see and hear and understand spiritual things. Although it's a perfectly, if you like, um, uh, um, a perfectly effective tool of intellectualism, it's not an effective instrument to communicate with the spirit of God. Amen? Or to think spiritually. And, and, and we've got to walk right away from that and we've got to, because as a result of this, it says they have become, they become past feelings, they have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all in uncleanness with greediness. And, and the result, this is what happens. Um, it, this is what leaves, leads to this um, tragic inability. I mean, I, I lived this way, and it says in Ephesians 2 that we all once lived this way. I mean, I, would, for years, for example, was a convinced evolutionist. And, and, and really, it's the most stupid way to think, to think that... Uh, I mean, I remember being troubled when I, I bought my first house on virgin soil and planted out a garden for the first time myself, planted out a yard and got all these, these um, shrubs and plants and stuck them in the ground and they flowered and were so beautiful. And, and, and I remember battling with this, well, well, how can this just be an evolutionary process? There's design. I remember battling with these things at the time. Because, but my, my mind was processed, so it wasn't, I wasn't being allowed to think spiritually. And, and I thank God that very early in my Christian life, I was challenged by God on my first read through the Bible to let him renew my mind. And it happened within three months of conversion. And I, and I, I just, in a moment, became a convinced creationist, not because I was reasoned into it, but because I was transformed into it by a spiritual renewal of my mind. If you like, the scientific evidence was gradually accumulated over the next 20 years. But the, the, the trains were so complete that from that morning, I was able to think like God. And I thank, I thank God for that. And, and when I talk to people, you know, I, I used to spend a lot of time in students and universities, and I find this is a massive problem. And, and, and it's not a matter of intellect or lack of intellect, it's a, it's a matter of whether your mind's being renewed. Because once your mind's being renewed, you need all your intellect and much more besides to comprehend the mysteries that God's now able to show you. Amen? So we've got to make a decision, I'm not going to walk that way anymore. And, you, and, and it's, a, it's an act which you deliberately choose to, to take. Amen? Because it then says, For you have not so learned Christ. Jesus in his humanity had the perfect human mind. And we are offered in several places in Scripture, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Amen? Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We have the mind of Christ. It comes again and again through Scripture. And that, again, that's not just, that's not poetic language. It's, it's practical reality. And we're never going to get there till we, till we start to think straight. Then you come to verse 21, 
Uh, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught him, taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Now as we come into verse 20 onwards, we're now being given a whole list of things that we need to put on and put off. And the putting off and the putting on, I put it here in the notes here, uh, it's a crisis moment. And let me repeat what I said this morning, that, that there's a time, maybe in this conference or some other time, you hear God speak to you about an issue. Now that's the time to do it. If you're obeying when he speaks to you, if, that is, if there's that sort of hunger to obey what he says to you, then that's the time when the transforming miracle takes place. You can't do it, oh well I need to think about this for another two or three weeks. Well if you do that, you'll lose it. And when you decide to come back later and want it, you won't necessarily be able to have it because you've missed your moment of opportunity. And I can't say that strongly enough. When God speaks to you, that's the time you do it. And this particular morning, in my life, as I was reading through the whole Bible, I got to Hebrews 11.3, which says, we, by faith we believe that the worlds were made by him out of things which he doesn't appear. And God spoke to me and he said, you're not going to go anywhere until you change your attitude to my word. He said, now take all your doubts about the Bible, you know, Joshua making the sun stand still. Well, I could calculate mathematically what would happen if the sun did stand so or if the earth stopped rotating. I mean, it would be disastrous in all kinds of incredible ways. And, and, and my intellectual side of mind couldn't just literally believe that. So I just put it on the side of some bit of mythology. And then all I go through all the bits of the Bible, Jonah and the whale and all that kind of stuff. And God said to me, you will never uh, get anywhere until you change your attitude to my word. So he said, now take all your doubts about the Bible, and he said, now put them like, like sort of symbolically into a, into a kind of box. And he said, put them all there, all your doubts and all your reservations, Genesis 1 converses, you know, versus evolution. And he said, now when you've got them all together, he said, take them to the window and throw them out by faith and make a decision that from now on you're going to trust every word of the scripture like a little child. Because he said to me, he said, when you receive Jesus, as your saviour, and that man talked to you about believing in the cross and that it would take away your sins. Did it make any sense to you? I said, no. He said, well, what happened? I said, well, I decided to believe it. He said, did it work? I said, absolutely. He said, well, that's the way you deal with this issue too. He said, take it out and chuck it out and decide, like a little child, you're going to trust my word. Now, because I did that, in a, I did it immediately obedience. And this stuffy... Uh, intellectual professor type guy that I once was um, was delivered from intellectualism and became a childlike thinker who could think like God in a moment of obedience because that was the time the word was said to me. And I've never ever been troubled ever since with intellectualism. I mean, I, I, I just don't, you know what I mean by that? I mean, I've got a, and, and I thank God in a way, I've got a much better mind now than I had, but it's, it's totally submissive to his revealed truth. Amen? So, if you, if you then come to verse 21. These, because I say there are crisis moments when the truth is appropriated and it then becomes practical and experiential. Don't miss those crisis moments. These grace riches of our inheritance are in him. We cannot receive the faith to appropriate them until we have heard him and been taught by him as the truth in his, is in Jesus. Too many Christians live on what I've come to call leaning faith or proxy faith. In John chapter 4, when that woman who was powerfully converted by encountering Jesus at the well, she goes back to her hometown, she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did, and the old town comes out, meets Jesus, and this is what they say. You read it there in verses 40-something, uh, 40 39 to 42, and, and they say, let's just read it, because there's an important principle here. John chapter 4, verse 39. Many of the Samaritans of the city believed in him, listen, because of the word of the woman who testified. So now, they've got a faith, because they believe what's being said to them. It's what I call proxy faith, or leaning faith. And even as you're listening to me in these days of this conference, 
things are coming to you because of what Alan is saying to you and you can, you can, you can if you like, come to faith at two levels. You can believe because of what Alan said to you or you can go to this next stage. Then they come and they listen to Jesus and then they say this. Verse 42, then they, they believe now, verse 41, because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you have said, for we, we ourselves have heard him and know indeed that this is in the Christ. So they've gone, if you like, from being convinced by what the woman said to hearing for themselves. And I, I, this is a particular, I believe, a problem when teenagers or, or children grow up in a Christian home. And they grow up, if you like, believing all the things that they believe because their parents have taught it to them. And I tell you, when I saw my kids like that, I prayed for the day that they would have their own encounters with Jesus so that they will be living, not in the faith of their parents, they will be living in their own experience of God because before they go to university, they better know where their feet are grounded. Because if they go to university with proxy faith, that's where it's often destroyed. Can you hear what I'm saying? And there comes a point where we have to see him and hear him for ourselves. And that only then, I believe, does that word have the power to bring you to, to, to real faith. Like my wife Eileen sat in this conference, she heard this wonderful preacher talking about, you know, in that Keswick style about the old man being crucified and living in, in holy victory and she, she tried and tried and tried to believe it but she couldn't. Then on the motorcycle, on the way home, she hears him for herself. And the old man's thrown over the, into, over the hedge into the next ditch and it's a done deal because it's now come to her from the Lord. And so that we, we have to come and we've got to bring our people to this place where they've heard them for themselves. You understand what I'm saying? And I remember the day when my kids, one by one, had their own encounters with God and then I knew, like me, they were hooked for life. I never any more anxieties about them. Okay? There has to be a renewing of the spirit of the mind causing us to think differently. Which comes next there. That, that Verse 22, you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now these are the things that, that you do. <coughs> I'm going to move on. and uh, If you've got any doubts, we can perhaps try and talk it through further. How, how this, but this has got to practically happen, and I think I've already done my best to explain how it happens. Wednesday morning in 1965, I put on the mind of Christ and stopped thinking lustful thoughts which I'd struggled with even in my first seven years as a Christian. It happened one Wednesday morning, bang. And I've never been troubled with it ever since. That was 1965. And I got the mind of Christ. It became, now I've been very careful to guard this new mind and I'm very careful to, you know, I don't want to watch the wrong, I mean I hardly watch television at all. I hardly watch any movies. Not because I'm some stuffy old prude, but because they, frankly, they are contaminating. They contaminate, even the advertisements, even if the, you know, I, I, I mean, my, I've got my hand on the switch there because I, I don't want this lovely new thing that God's given me to be polluted by the junk that comes through, you know, our various television programs. I'd rather have my new mind than anything else that I can think of. Amen? Alright, so then it comes to a list of things which we could spend time on. Verse 25, put, put on truth. And I tell you, beloved, that's a lot harder to put on than you think. I remember when I was going through this process a few years ago, I said, well, Lord, I'm a pretty truthful sort of guy. <laughs> I said, Lord, if, if I, if, I don't know why you write all these things to believers all the time. Surely that's elementary. I said, well, Lord, if I ever tell a lie, during today, just ring a bell in my heart. Well, by the end of the day, I was deaf. <laughs> With this clanging bell. Because, <laughs> you know, exaggeration is lying. Or, uh, what, what's that? There's a delight. Politicians have got some marvellous ways of wriggling around this. And, 
And, and uh, I think one of the British Prime Ministers said, no, we've not lied, we've just been economical with the truth. That's what he said. <laughs> and, and Bill Clinton's got some classics, which I'm sure you would agree, which we don't need to quote here. But put on truth is a great, great thing to put on. And always speak truth with your neighbour, for we're members one of another. And it tells us to put off unrighteous anger. And then it says here, never let it continue past sunset. Because you see, you might kid yourself, well, there's righteous anger. Yes, there is. But um, it says that you're not to let the sun go down on your anger. And the times that that verse has convicted my wife and I when we've got backs to each other in bed. You know the sort of feeling we've had a bit of a... Uh, altercation of words. She's always been at fault, but I, I've been willing to, I've been willing to forgive her if only she would admit it. <laughs> now I'm lying, <laughs> and here we are. We're, we're lying on a, in our king-size bedroom, as far to the edges as we can get, with our backs to each other, and that wretched verse pops up, and we try and say, "Look, we can't go to sleep till we settle this. We've got to get right before." we come to the end of this day. Eh? Never let the sun go down on your anger. And that saved us again and again. And the same in you know, relationships um, uh, between brothers. And, and if, if there's an issue, I mean, Jesus says this, look, the best thing to do is if your brother offends him, you forgive him and forget it. If you can't, you've got to go and get it put right. You can't leave it unresolved. It's totally unbiblical. And you don't go and talk to somebody else about it first. Amen? You go to him. But the whole purpose of the exercise is not to repeat all your critical judgments, because the purpose of the exercise is to gain your brother. That's what my Bible says. If, you're in it, if your brother's at fault, you go and rebuke him. That word is that same Greek word, elenchio, you go and persuade him to see it your way, but you've got to be open to possibly seeing it his way. So look, we've got to get this thing resolved. We can't allow this thing to continue between us. Now these are the practicalities which keep us in the power to overcome any demonic assault upon our church, upon our lives, and upon our city. Amen? It says here, don't give the devil that kind of opportunity. Don't give place to the devil. So failing to do that gives place to the devil. So you think of all the unresolved issues between brothers and sisters in, in a city, and does it begin to make you realise why the devil can keep his feet well established in the town? For all our praying, for all our casting him out, if these things are not resolved, he can just laugh at us, beloved. And, and say, brother, this is very elementary work. It is, but I'm trying to get it to the point where it becomes the practice the practical way that we live. Because they're, they're written here for that very, very reason. Alright, let's move on. Verse 28. Um, let's, let me put it this way. Put on financial integrity. Let him who stole steal no longer. You can steal from God. I guess most Christians steal most from God. And pastors are some of the worst thieves that I've known. Because if you don't give to God the full tithe, what are you? A thief. And you don't get divine pardon because you're a pastor. In fact, you, we've got to be exemplary in these things. I can't teach things that I'm not practicing, at least and beyond the level that I'm teaching them. Otherwise, I'm just a fraud. Would you agree with that? I don't steal from the tax man. Even if I think the taxes are unjust, I do, I do my best to, to righteously minimise what I'm liable, but I, I, can't, I don't go beyond that. Amen? I drive at the, at the speed limit, even if I think it's stupid. Because I'm to obey every, every ordinance of law. And if I think, well, this is the most ridiculous place to put a 35-mile limit I've ever seen. And I've said that. But then you still obey it. 
because these are the ways in which God will uh, test our practical integrity. Well, then we're, so in, in our finances, we've got to be impeccable. Um, I will not, for example, take, although I don't altogether agree with this law of copyright, I will not take other people's software programs and load them in e- illegally onto our computers. I'll buy a copy of my own, although I still, it still gets up my nose to do it. But that's the law and I'm going to stay by the law because I don't want to give the devil opportunity to wreck my whole computer network because there's sin there right in the computer. Hello, can you hear me? And if you go through your life and, and of course, all that you're responsible for spiritually, because we've had a good clean-up on all our computers, so I, don't, I, I got an explanation, I don't want anything. I don't want any software program, any computer that we haven't righteously paid for. Wipe it off and then we will buy what we need so that we're absolutely clean before God and before man. And as far as I'm concerned, it goes right through the whole organisation. Amen? I don't really agree with the copyright law and I think it's very unfair but at the moment that's where the law is and I've got to obey it the way it is. Alright? Okay. Then verse 29. Put off, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. What you heard someone tell you about someone else is often corrupt. I'm very careful how I pass on information and you know these days on, on the internet we get all these stories and half the time you find that someone's invented them. Like I had it about six or seven times. A, a beautiful story about how uh, George Bush at his uh, celebration dinner uh, where he was helping all his, or having a dinner to thank all those who worked to uh, help get him into office. There was some lady apparently who uh, uh, he stopped and discovered she was a Christian and then he sat down for 30 minutes to lead his 16-year-old son to Christ. Have you had that one? I've had it about six times. I've now had a, a, an email saying it was totally erroneous and the guy's apologising. Some lady invented that. Now why? I don't know why. But that goes all over the internet and, and, and first of all it's corrupt and secondly it makes Christians look utterly stupid. Amen? So let's make sure as far as we're concerned but no, if we don't know it for fact and if we don't know its substance then let's not pass it on until we do. I mean I keep a lot of things to myself these days to say well I'm not sure and until I know I'm, not going to, I'm going to be careful. I don't want to add to the miscommunication business that's going on um, in Christian circles right now. Amen? So let no corruption communicate out of your mouth but but then, and of course, particularly in the area of judgment or criticism, yeah, he's a lovely brother, but, you know, but, but if you, if it, even if it's distressing news you've heard, all the more reason not to repeat it unless you absolutely have to. I mean, if, if, a, if, a, a, well, if a person that you know is a wolf in sheep's clothing, a charlatan who's going to join another church of your friend because you found him out and he's left your church, then I think you do need to tell the pastor of that church. That's a, that's a matter of responsibility. That, that church doesn't go and get conned and messed up by him the way they conned and messed up you. Now we owe that to one another as pastors. So that's, that's not what I believe we're talking about here. But, but what's good necessary for building up edification is this word hoikodomia, building up that it may impart grace to the hearers and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God from whom you were, by whom you were sealed in the day of redemption. The Spirit of God gets grieved by a lot of conversations that go on between Christians. Would you agree with that? Then we've got to do something else. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and all that stuff be put away. And, and then it says, be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And I tell you, the church is one of the cruelest places I know when a person is caught in sin. When a pastor fails, for example, and gets kicked out of his home and everything else at a moment's notice and there's nothing done by that fellowship of pastors that he went to every week to pray with. They say, oh, he's just fallen into sin. And, and I tell you, the cruelty 
of the body of Christ to its own fallen ones just, just appalls me and I feel we've got to say look okay we may have to discipline him but, but we must always show a way of redemption in him there's got to be a way back and a whole new kindness is to come in. would you agree with that I mean I could talk for an hour on each one of these things but, but I'm just dropping little seeds here and saying look the whole of our the way we walk and think and act has got to, we've got to let the spirit of God go over it until it does not grieve him And I've grieved him for years. And as you get more and more sensitive to God and closer to God, things that you got away with two years ago, they're not acceptable now. I don't know. I don't know I'm not, I'm God caught me out on lying, and I, I tell you, he really took me to the woodshed over that one. And I, I, I pray to God. I, tell you, I better tell you this story. Eileen is one of the most efficient shoppers that there is. She can always go to the best place, get the best price, and she'll take out an hour to get two dollars off something, you know, or two cents off something. And I think it's a stupid waste of time. <laughs> so I'll go into the first store, because I want it in, out quick, and get it finished with. Shopping to me is the most appalling exercise that man can go in for how people how people can go to the mall for pleasure I just cannot understand but, but, but that's me so on this particular anyway I went and did one of my grab it quick and get home with it stuff and when I got home she looked at the label she said you paid that for that and I went through this absolute misery of being chastened about this one dollar forty seven cents I'd wasted So I decided I was going to have enough of this. So next time I went out shopping and did the same thing, I pulled off all the labels and then, <laughs> then I lied to her what I'd paid for it. And I, and I theoretically had some of those fantastic bargains that we'd ever had and she was, so, she was so pleased with me. But this started to become a habit. And I'll tell you what happened. I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but it happened. We were, we were planning, because in America, electronic equipment is, is incredibly cheap compared with Europe. And uh, this particular store had the most incredible, and I was helping, or hoping to help my youngest son to get himself a computer at home. This was several years ago. And I went into, I think it was Circuit City or something, and they had this, in, they had this amazing bargain on this particular computer you know, a special discount knockdown price. And I bought it. It was more than we agreed that I would buy it for his birth, his wedding Christmas. And I didn't want another bombardment from Eileen about I'd spent too much on my favourite son. So I told her it was an even better bargain than it was, which made her absolutely delighted. But the trouble was it wasn't true. And of course, being a very righteous man of God, a pastor, when I get to customs in Britain, I honestly declare the computer is. I'm not going to take it in my baggage like these common worldly people. I declare it with all honesty and integrity. So he says, my wife standing beside me, he says, how much did you pay for it? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm absolutely caught. <laughs> well, I, I, have, I have, I'm ashamed to say that the fear of my wife and her anger was, was greater than my fear of the law. <laughs> so, I, I, think it was, I think it was Circuit City, one of these big chain stores in America, anyway. So I said the price that I told her, but this guy knew his stuff. So he pulls out from underneath his desk a copy of Circuit City with the bargain price for this particular computer. He says, but it, it says this much here, sir. So how are you telling me you pay that when this says that? And at that point, I, I broke and I repented. And, and, and the customs man was kind on me. He didn't send me to jail for 10 years. But, and I, but the, the, the contrition in my heart that God had to do that to catch me out on this. Well, he, I mean, that, that, that was the woodshed.
and I'm still, I'm still deeply ashamed to tell you this, but I want you to know that that's the kind of God we serve. Well, that, that cured me for life. I you can get as mad as she likes, but I'm going to tell the truth. <laughs> and she has to forgive me. Yeah. This takes us right on to chapter 5. Well, <laughs> the end of chapter 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Well, he had to deal with her on some of those things, which I, she'll tell you about that, not me. Okay. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. Here's another walk. We walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And I've just listed it here on page 31. Uh, this is obvious in what it's saying but you can see what I'm trying to do is to underline it three times in red until it becomes our practical way of living put away how much bitterness how much wrath how much anger loud quarreling evil speaking and malice and our attitudes We've got to put away attitudes that are contrary to love and we've got to put on attitudes that demonstrate love. It's not enough to tell your wife you love her, you've got to show her that. It's not enough to, it's so easy to say, I love your brother, I love your sister. Well, let's see it. Amen? So we, we are to walk in love, imitating God and loving to the same standard as Jesus. That's pretty tall, hard but it's not impossible amen and there's, there's the forgiving the word forbearance by the way has the idea of covering over forbearance in other words it's like you know when um, when Ham Shem and Japheth found Noah drunk Ham exposed his sin and the other two covered his sin you understand what I mean and there's a, there's a right way uh, that we, we cover things up. We, we don't let things out. Like, say a church member happens to come to the pastor's house and they hear they're having a first-class row inside the house. Well, you can do one of two things. You can decide that you never heard it. Or you can go around and gossip it around to the rest of the church. They, you, I, they were, see what I'm saying? Now there may be, and there is a right place to deal with sin, but there's a right place also to cover sin. And the Spirit of God has got to show us when which is appropriate. Amen? And, and there are things that you just choose not to register, even though you can see and hear they're going on. And I sometimes I visit people's homes and, and I'm quite prophetic. I could, and God's given me a, a, an ability to, it's part of the equipment I need for my job. I can pick things up in an instant. But, but if I allow that to become judgmental or a source of gossip, then I'm absolutely grieving and I'm abusing and misusing the gifting that God's given me. Amen? Right, let's move on because he then talks, see these are so practical things. Then it goes on to this whole issue of walking in moral purity. Walking in moral purity. And it says, But fornication and all uncleanness, all covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting the saints. It's very interesting, isn't it, that covetousness is stuck there with fornication and uncleanness. So if you have ambitions for things and you're coveting things in God's sight he puts it in the same category as being immoral and, and fornicating or committing adultery now that staggers me and it took me a long time to understand why because basically both of these things are, are if you like giving way to lust and you're then satisfying those lusts and you, you will not allow yourself to be that sort of person 
I've got it here, avoid covetousness, which is in the same category. Why? Because it's another kind of greed or lust which comes from the same root. If we don't deal with it, we will be disqualified and become another spiritual casualty. And once again, let me take you back to this buying weed analogy. If you're covetous, if you're greedy in one area, then it can pop up anywhere. It's amazing in Scripture how God, for example, connects surfeit of living with sexual immorality. It comes again and again. Because if you're, if you're uncontrolled in your eating habits, you will probably be uncontrolled in your sexual habits. If you're uncontrolled in your desire for things, then you'll be uncontrolled in many, many other areas as well. Because they're all, if you like, branches of the same root. That's why I'm very careful about the way that I eat. And on the road like I am, and everybody wanting to take me out for great dinners and that, it's very easy to overeat. So I, I've, got, I've learned certain routines now, and I've found that one of the things that is so valuable is not so much to go on long fasts, I do that occasionally when God leads me, but much is much more important is to maintain a life of discipline. And there are two things which I do. One is a daily fast, I, you know, probably, and that's pretty frequently, just to go without food for the day, particularly if I can have a day where I can shut myself up with God so that my body learns that it can survive without food for a day. So it's got that kind of training. It's like you know, an athlete who will keep his muscles in good shape so that if he has to run a race, he's ready to run the race. So that, and that keeps the body in submission. Paul said, I keep my body in submission. Lest having preached to others, I myself might become a... a I myself might become disqualified. So keeping my body under authority where my spirit can rule my body to me is a very vital part of my personal discipline. I also find that, that where I find it almost impossible to think about a 40-day fast because it means you've got to shut down on everything. And I think it's very impractical personally to ask churches to commit themselves to 40-day fasts if you really mean what you're saying, which is that you don't eat for 40 days. Because most people, that's the thing, you've got to shut yourself away, you've got to build up to it gradually, and then rebuild again afterwards. So it's a very, very, very great time commitment. And I think it, you know, personally, I think it's done with a kind of ill-thought extravagance. And what you have is, well, we're going we're to go on 40 days fast, which means as a body, like, like Jill's going to, you know, she's going to give up watching soap operas on a Thursday afternoon, which is for her a discipline. Well, good. And Jack's going to, you know, he's going to, and, and people do that, but, but, but that's not to me, that's not a fast. It, it's a good discipline which is going to have benefit. But fasting, generally speaking, means that you abstain from food and you just drink water or, uh, or at the most a bit of juice or a bit of flavoured water. Now, three days... Anybody can handle that. And what I've found in the churches that I've led in various countries of the world, including Great Britain, that when people start a one-day fast and get the idea that they can survive and their body actually you know, can handle this, and if you extend it to three days, that is, is compatible with maintaining ordinary everyday life. And what we've found is in, in our churches that I've ever had leadership on, that short three-day fasts which are done on a regular basis, they're far more powerful in destroying demonic principalities and powers than one special event of 40 days, which is not even reality, because most people don't do it. When the whole church does three days, bam, I tell you, there's in, and, and they can handle that. Most people, with a little bit of training, can handle that and find that they're much better at the end than they were before, in every, every way. But boy, and you can probably meet for two nights, or the three nights, in, and gather for prayer to sort of, even if you've got to go to work for the day, you can come together in the evening and you can hit those demonic powers by a special prayer meeting. Now, once every two or three months for three days, you can handle that. It, it's practical. And it's incredibly powerful. So, I want to suggest that you, that you think and pray about how God wants to build these things into our lives. But what I'm determined is that, that, that food is never going to rule over my body. And the cravings of the flesh are going to be dealt with by my grace-filled spirit ruling over them. Amen? Because I'm serious about...
or some other army unit, I tell you, they're serious about getting you physically fit. And we need to be just as serious that in every respect we are fit for war. And part of our fitness has got to be a proper regulation of the physical. I don't think you're effective in spiritual warfare when your body's an uncontrolled heap of flab. Excuse me being blunt, but I feel I need to say these things because to me that's as important as having the right kind of prayer life. Because they all work together to the same end. I hope they haven't hurt anybody, but if it is, it's the Lord. <laughs> well, that's my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. Okay. Now, let's, let's just move on. Then we come to... Um, well, where are we? We're in chapter 5, and we're now... Yeah, I, I, oh, here we are, verse 4. This is important. Let neither, let neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. And there's a certain way, and it's particularly true when a bunch of men get together. And it's unfortunately true even when a bunch of Christian godly men get together, that a, there's a certain direction of joking and of coarse jesting, which, which I find offends my spirit and I believe it grieves the spirit of God. And I think if you've got to change the conversation because a lady waitress comes in for example, there's something wrong with your conversation. Can I say that? And there's a certain way of joking and a certain coarseness of joking which uh, is absolutely inappropriate and, and I will not be part of it. Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. And that would include the kind of jokes which poke fun at a particular ethnic group as well. Amen? Amen. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Notice what it's saying. If you want an inheritance in the kingdom of God, this I don't believe so much is arguing whether you're saved or not, it's whether you come into your inheritance in the kingdom. You just don't have any. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. Here's the next thing we're commanded to walk in light. Let me just quickly expand that. A lot said about this also in First John, and I've got some notes here. Light and darkness are mutually exclusive. They cannot coexist. If you walk into a darkened room and put the light on, the darkness ceases to be there. Amen? It's obvious. And it is a, a, a scientific, physical fact that light is now recognized as the ultimate source of power and energy. Light is one of the most, you know, in its laser form, for example, it's one of the most precise means of destruction that man has yet invented. I mean, they've now got a place, as you probably know this, with laser beams where they can actually take out human cells one at a time. They can actually start to destroy like a cancerous area and just hitting, there's such precision now with it. Light is, 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 has got three, three dimensions which I quickly want to mention. They're mentioned in First John and they're basically mentioned here. The first thing about light is that it exposes. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another. Jesus says that there are those that refuse to come to the light because their deeds are evil. Some people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Now these are all statements in Scripture. And so the first work of light is that it exposes and it shows things the way they really are. And if we're serious with God, we're not afraid of that light. In fact, we welcome the light. And we want to walk in that light because God's got an answer, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son. When it's exposed, it's not hard for him to deal with it. S secondly, when light has exposed something, it then has the power to destroy what's been exposed. They're all scriptural verses, but I'm, I'm just hurrying up. I'm not going to take time to look them all up. But you find it in First John and you find it in this passage in Ephesians chapter 5 here. 
And, and then the third thing is that light then has the power to create, I mean, photosynthesis, you must have heard of that phrase. That is a means of where God uses light to actually manufacture things. So light is a form that God still uses today to create things. And things are manufactured by the activity of light. And certain plants uh, have this tremendous um, gift from God. I mean, if I could kind of think what, you'd, what sort of plant man would need to make to do it. But here's a little leaf of a flower and it's doing the most incredibly complex photosynthesis. It's absolutely amazing to me as a scientist that spent a lot of my life investigating the act because my my job in research was to was to look at any light reaction and 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 see what we could do to produce products from it and uh, and I tell you when I got into that sphere a very highly specialized sphere where I became a student of light and, and a, a, a discoverer of light reactions in physical and chemical substances I, after I'd just been converted it to me it was like God opened up to me because I could now see him as God creator in all this. It was absolutely awesome. And all, you know, like, I mean, for example, the way that textiles are manufactured, the way that aircraft parts are made, the way that uh, microchips are manufactured, they all rely on products that I was responsible for in the Kodak Research Laboratories all those years ago. We discovered ways of producing photosensitive rubbers, and, and photosensitive resists, which were which were used in all kinds of amazing ways. But I tell you, I became absorbed and obsessed with photosynthesis. Now, I better not get into that. I'm wandering. But I want you to see that in God, spiritually, the light of God can come, and it and it can it can create what was not there. So, if you like, let me put it this way: the area of shame that you're not really that you want God to see it because you're rather ashamed of it, but if you let God see it, let God, if you'll be open and frank to let God get at it, of course he knows it's there. You understand what I mean? So, right, you can, I'll lay myself bare and you can deal with this thing. Then, first of all, light exposes. Then light destroys that which is darkness. And then light then creates that which is beautiful. And the area of shame becomes the area of greatest beauty in your life. Do you understand what I'm saying? And now that's what happens when you walk in the light, and that's just a quick summary of it. Come to Ephesians 5, 15 to 21, where we're told to walk in wisdom, is the phrase that I've got here. See then that you walk circumspectly, walk wisely, and not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, the word is kairos, Taking, taking those opportunities and grabbing them with both hands. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be drunk with wine, but be, then the word there is a, is, is a present continuous tense. It's not commanding you to be filled with the Spirit, it's commanding you to go on continuously being filled with the Spirit. So that you are, you've learned to drink at, I've put it here, at, at, drink constantly at the fountain of life in the Spirit. And again and again and again you'll find this expression which, which, which then exhorts us to give thanks. We speak to one another in heart psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts, giving thanks always for all things to God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. So, is that okay? I've covered that pretty quickly, but are you happy with that? Now I'll come on to the next thing. This is the, the seventh way I've got down in which we have to walk. And I'll spend a few minutes on this, and then we'll have a break. We are to walk, it says, I put it here, walk in submission. Verse 21 says, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. We're to walk in submission. Let me spend, send, say a few words about Bible submission. Bible submission at its heart, let me say first of all what it is. It's got several elements to it. It's having true humility, which is denying yourself. It's, um, it's denying anything 
that's of the flesh. Self-seeking, self-exaltation, self-promotion. It's esteeming others higher than yourself. And the word submission actually means to put yourself under. It's actually a military term. Where you recognize that in the body of Christ there is God-ordained ranking. We're not all equal. And that it isn't an, an egalitarian system. Which we're not all the same. Although we're equally valuable, we're not all the same. There's a difference. Amen? God's put order in his kingdom. He's put order which we, which we don't kick against or resent or try to buck. The difference between the kingdom and the world is that, that we joyfully recognize it as our God-given blessing and our God-given security. But God is very careful to teach those in his kingdom how we exercise authority and how we practice submission. And it's not my subject, it would be far too big a subject to try and cover um, this time. And I really believe that that's part of the kingdom. It's part of understanding the kingdom. So when I do the next school of the word, I'm really going to explain how this works in the kingdom. Because there's been some terribly abusive perversions of this. But that doesn't give us the right to chuck it all out and say, right, from now on, I don't submit to anybody but Jesus. Because that's not permitted in the kingdom. Amen? And there are certain relationships where it's very clearly taught in Scripture. But let me tell you what... So, Bible submission is a passion to put yourself, and I use that word advisedly, to put yourself under those in the kingdom that God clearly indicates have been given a responsibility of leadership and of authority in the best biblical sense of the word over you and over your life. Now, certain relationships automatically indicate that. In a family, the wife in the kingdom cannot marry a husband without recognizing her need to submit to him. Now, that does not mean that he's stop stomping around, having his own way. And we'll see in a moment that we immediately move into marriage to make sure there's no misunderstanding of this thing. And what God requires of the man is a thousand times worse, or better, maybe, harder, than what he requires, because a man is supposed to, all, all a man has to do is just to be like Jesus and you're the perfect husband. Well, that's, that's a pushover. You, you've got to love your wife as, as he loved the church and gave himself for her. Man, what a calling. He's to wash her with the water of the word until she's without spot or blemish or, or wrinkle or any such thing. So he's got tremendous loving responsibilities. To, he's to nourish her and to cherish her. And these are two wonderful old English words and there's no good equivalent. I mean, he's to be a source of, of fatness of supply to feed and develop her spirituality and, all, and, and to provide for her in every way, to give her the you know, security that she's not carrying any of those burdens. Now that's his responsibility. And most women don't have a problem with husbands who behave like Jesus, do they? I mean, they're not a problem. There's too few of them around. Okay, let me just tell you what submission is not. It is not blind obedience. There's a difference between submission and obedience, although obviously they're connected. And there comes a point where, and let, let me say this, but see, there's, a, there's an order of authority. I've got a, there's a tape, at least one tape there, which I got from certain sources, and I don't claim, but I've developed it myself. I don't claim the origination for all of it, but it's, it's a very, uh, what I've basically done is to put down the different kinds of authority in the kingdom of God and their counterfeit and put them in their proper order. Because what it says in Romans 13 is it says, it, it says um, uh, obey the highest authority. And sometimes you've got a conflict of authority. And here's the, here's the order of authority. Number one, God. He's got complete authority. Amen? Number two is his word. And then number three, listen to how I say this, it's, it's a word-quickened conscience. If you can imagine a magnet 
which is which is lubricated in a in a in a beautiful, clean, pure bath of oil, and it's in under a strong magnetic field. It's going to swing unerringly in the right direction. Amen. But if there's no strong magnetic field, it will wander around, not knowing which way to point. And if it's on rusty bearings, which are not properly lubricated, it can be stuck because of the lack of lubrication. So it can give you a false reading. Amen. But imagine a, a compass in perfect working order, beautifully oiled, floating in a, in a beautiful bath of oil, such beautiful sympathetic bearings, in a strong magnetic field, it's always going to point in the right direction. Now that's the picture I've drawn of what I'm going to call a word-soaked conscience. The, the word is like the magnetic field. And the oil is like the lubricating power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Bible talks about different kinds of conscience. It talks about a weak conscience. It talks about a seared conscience. It talks about a false, a erroneous conscience. And then it talks about a true conscience. And what, uh, you know, apart from hearing God, and these two are very closely connected, one of the most important faculties that you and I need is, is a word-soaked conscience that inerringly points to truth. Whatever you hear and whatever impressions come, it just swings and says, Now I know that's true, I know that. And, and it says, this, The anointing that you have received, it'll teach you all things that you have no, no need for men to teach you. That doesn't mean you don't receive teaching, but inside you there is a kind of unerring truth detector. That can, even if you've never heard it before, you say, Boy, that was a word from God, because it, it tells you that. Amen? And when you've got that sort of conscience, that is number three in the order of authority. Almighty God himself is the absolute authority. His word is the second authority. The third authority is your absolutely quickened and, and, and word-soaked, word-empowered, all-spirit-soaked conscience, which unerringly finds the truth. Number four is delegated authority. And that's where the problem often arises, is because what someone may say, and, and delegated authority is a pastor in a church, an apostolic ministry that has an authority, but it's delegated from God, husbands and wives, parents and children, employer and employee. These are all delegated authorities. And what a delegated authority tells you cannot contravene what your conscience is telling you, providing it's a genuine word-soaked conscience. And in Scripture, you will find that the Apostle Paul never overrode anybody's conscience. And that's our safeguard. And so, I will never... Now, if I've got a little, tiny, young child, then I can't respond. I haven't even got a conscience that works properly. But as they grow to maturity, my relationship with my son is a constantly changing dynamic. You'll notice how the Apostle Paul, dealing with the Apostle Apollos, although Apollos is under him, he says, I wanted Apollos to go to so-and-so, but he didn't think it was right, so he didn't go. That wasn't rebellion or defiance. He recognized that man's mature enough to hear God, and if he doesn't feel good about it, I'm not going to force him to do what he doesn't feel good about. Amen? Now that's the way authority and submission works and I could, we could have a long, long time on this and I feel this is so important we'll have at least one or maybe more sessions on the kingdom to show how that works in the church and in all our relationships in the kingdom because there's been some very abusive things done but on the other hand it's been for other people the excuse to live in total independent rebellion against all authority and they're both equally wrong but it's an attitude of submission you see, even in a leader, if he's got an attitude of submission, he's fearfully recognizing he's been given a responsibility from God to whom he's accountable, and he says, I'm not going to abuse or in any way misuse the authority that God's given me, because I'm going to have to account for someone who's going to deal with me one day for this. And so submission runs all the way through. So obedience is conditional upon conscience. For example, an employee, and this ha happened to one of the guys in one of our churches. 
he was an accountant working for a company. The boss told him to falsify figures in order to save a lot of tax. He said, sir, I will obey you in all things, but I'm not going to do that. Now, that was a right response. He had to disobey his employer in order to obey God. There comes a point, in, even in civil law, when, like Peter, who stood before the Sanhedrin and said this, he said, we must obey God rather than man. We cannot accept your order to us to speak no more in the name of Jesus. And yet it was Peter who said, obey every ordinance of, of law, obey, submit to everyone in authority. But there was a line drawn which says, I can't cross the line into disobeying God in order to obey you. I've had this tragic uh, experience, even within Christian marriages, of dealing with some men, um, that are husbands, who, who, have got, who are perverted. I mean, let me say this, that marriage is not a legalizing of lust. You can't do what you like, any old how, just because you're married. The Bible says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. And there's a, there's a godly way of enjoying this great gift from God, and there's a foul, perverted, worldly way which should never be ever known or exercised amongst Christians. But I've been called in sometimes to counsel in a marriage relationship where the husband wants to go into all kinds of perverted things and the wife, in conscience sake, can't go with him in that thing. And I have to say, she has a right to say no. She can, she can, I'll obey you as my husband, but not to the point where I'm violating my obedience to God in order to satisfy your wrong, sinful lust, even if it's within marriage. So there are lines which we draw. Okay? And I think I'd better stop. Okay? Obedience is not the same as submission. So in a very submissive way you can say no. Let me just, we'll close with this. Um, walking in submission is powerful in overcoming all the powers of Satan because it establishes an obedient and pure church. Now, when we come back from the break, we'll just look at the other issues in Ephesians 5 and 6, and I think we might finish on time. Praise the Lord. So let's have a break. If you really need to ask questions... Um